Today's interview deals with the topic of addiction and suicide and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Alyssa Minear from Fort Mill, South Carolina, and I'm a small business owner of Sweet Waffle Farm Boutique. I love listening to Compelled because it strengthens my faith to hear so many incredible stories of what God is doing. It encourages me to persevere and inspires a deeper love for God and amazement for His power. Enjoy today's episode. It was a time when I was really trying to take my life into my own hands, and I lost all hope. Like I didn't want to live with myself any longer. By early 2012, I was sitting in a bathtub with a butcher knife at my wrist. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Season 3 of Compelled, a seasonal podcast with unique stories from the kingdom of God told by the people compelled to live for Him. Last week, we heard from Jason and David Benham, also known as the Benham Brothers, identical twins who, among other things, are real estate entrepreneurs and former professional baseball players. But perhaps they are best known for being forced to make a decision between either being removed as hosts of a national reality TV show or renouncing their beliefs in God's design for marriage. You can hear that story by pulling up last week's episode. Today, we'll hear from Julian Weber, a regular father from suburban America who had everything the American dream could offer. A loving wife, four children, a beautiful home, a great job, and even leadership in his church. But when his identity was stripped away, his world quickly fell apart. That story coming up right after a word from our sponsors. I sat down with Julian at his home near Wichita, Kansas, and he shared with me how he immigrated to the United States from Germany when he was nine years old and was bullied by other students for many years because he didn't speak English well. But eventually, he settled into American culture and embraced everything it had to offer, including the good and the bad. So as I grew up in my youth, I was a schemer and a manipulator. I listened to horrible music at that time with the most vile lyrics. I would look at pornographic magazines. I would um, watch pornographic movies in my neighbor's basement. You know, we'd find his dad's collection, if you will. My mom started to encourage my brother and I to go to church with her. Um, It was a little bit more by force. At that time, I was a member of the youth group and would be involved in the activities, but I I didn't know God. And this was Julian's life. Happy, American, maybe even a professing Christian. But then one day, God stepped into Julian's life in an unexpected way. So in 92, this was when I was a junior in high school. I was 16 years old. And my best friend at the time and I were invited to a party at uh, Central Missouri State University. And I remember thinking, you know, what boy in his natural mind would pass up an evening with college girls. We were both very girl crazy. And when we got there, it ended up being like a bowling party for a Bible study group, which was, you know, a mild letdown. But we adjusted our expectations and we ended up enjoying ourselves. But um, as the evening progressed, things got late. These guys took and walked the ladies back to their dorm. And that's really when, when things got interesting for me. Um, he, we all got the girls inside and then gathered around in a circle in the vestibule outside of the, the actual dormitory itself. Just the guys. And or, the girls. And the guys. Yeah, and both together. 
And the, the guy who had invited us um, started to pray for the ladies. And, you know, I've heard lots of people pray throughout my life before, including my mom and, and a lot of her friends and at church. But I'd never quite heard anybody pray like, like this gentleman prayed. And uh, it was really as though he knew Jesus himself, like he had a personal relationship with Jesus. And that was new to me. It was just very stirring, very moving. I mean, my friend and I went, drove home. It was about a 45 minute to an hour long drive. And I mean, that's, it's all we could talk about. Like this guy, does he, like he really knew Jesus? Like that's crazy. The next evening there was an, a concert at, at a church. They did an altar call. And uh, that's really when I believe the Lord just maybe finished opening my eyes, at least to, from a conversion perspective, to, to how much he loves me. And I remember just wanting to know him more, like who he is. And so that's the first time I would say I, I really recognized the sin in my life. And um, I cried out to God because of it and, and repented that evening. My friend and I would, I mean, we had ongoing conversations and, and we still lived our lives, right? I mean, there was still kind of a lot of the, the, the worldliness in us. Um, I remember, like, for example, cursing for my friend. He, he stopped almost immediately for me. It took a while. It took months before I got my vo vocabulary cleaned up kind of a, as I grew. But we also had this really horrible garage band. But I remember that weekend, we converted it to a Christian band, um, just because, like, we knew, we had no clue at some level, right? But we were so excited and so pumped about, wow, there's a God, and he loves us, and Jesus, and we both started reading our Bibles. Yeah. And so we stopped writing songs that were just profane and vile and disgusting, and started writing lyrics about what we were learning through the Bible, and I remember, like, you know, the, our church, they would teach, like, the Roman road to salvation and so forth. And so I, I wrote a song about the Roman road. And we were still horrible, but... <laughs> yeah. But it was just neat on the inside, just the change that was starting to take place. Julian became so excited about his newfound faith that he enrolled in Bible school for a year before attending college. Eventually, he met his wife, Kelly, and they settled down in the Wichita, Kansas area. Julian had a great job, they were plugged in with their church, and life was good. Everything, you know, was picture perfect, the, the Christian American dream, if, if you will. You know, we had, we had a new home, four kids, and, and we were active in the church and ministry, and I mean, everything seemed like this is what anybody is supposed to be doing. What I didn't realize at the time is that my identity as a person was tied up in all of these various roles. I was the part-time church administrator. I served on the deacon board, etc. And I didn't realize it at the time, but all those things were false identities for me that I was internally kind of using to, to think more highly of myself than I should. Um, and then in 2006, my company basically put an end to all virtual employees and they pulled everybody back to their world headquarters in the Kansas City area. So we prayed, and that was a time also, you know, when the economy was already starting to tank sure. into the 07, 08 time frame. Yeah. There was nothing. Like, I couldn't even get a job at Target. And um, so we ended up moving back to to Kansas City later the, the summer that following year. And once we were there, 
we worked really, really, really hard to recreate that same life. And without realizing it, I mean, we started rejecting his God's providence, his will, his circumstances for our lives. And and we had we were creating coping mechanisms. We bought this gorgeous two-story colonial house. That following year, we bought a brand new uh, suburban. And both of us were just dealing with this change incorrectly. So I, I was reading my Bible consistently still. I was praying, but I, I was not rooted in sound doctrine. Um, I was not focusing on on the character of God, like I just said, on who he is. I wasn't reading his word to find out more about who he is or just to get to know him. Um, so my identity wasn't in, in who Jesus was or what he did. You know, it was in my various roles in life, husband, father, Sunday school teacher, deacon, etc., whatever. And then that whole strong persona that I tried to keep up. So God in his sovereignty slowly started to remove those roles from my life. But instead of setting my mind on him, I tried to recreate those roles. Julian isn't saying that being a Sunday school teacher, a father, or a husband is a bad thing. Those are great things. But unfortunately, Julian had placed his identity in those good things instead of in the creator who makes those things good in the first place. And as Julian was about to painfully discover, those identities would never stand the test of time apart from the one who makes them good. I started to experience some upper back pain on my right upper back. And I had been on, on sleeping medication for years before then, three or four years before then, and I wasn't abusing it. I was just using it to go to sleep at night. But then with this back pain, they, you know, they did some scans, couldn't figure out what it is. And, and she said, the doctor said, oh, it's probably stress related, whatever. So she gave me pain pills for a season. She's like, just take these and it'll probably go away. I remember the first time I took one of those narcotic pills. I mean, I had never felt that way before in my entire life. And I think, I mean, it, it hits different people differently. But in my mind, I was—I remember starting to look forward when, when it was time for the next dose. It starts to taper down to where it, it just becomes status quo, and you, you tolerate it, and then you, have, you start taking these pills just to feel what, what is the new normal for you. But then you start looking for other doctors, and they start prescribing. Now there's overlap. So you're getting pills from two sets of doctors, and neither set of doctors knows about the existence of the other doctor. That's exactly right. So it starts with that, but in my head, I'm justifying it. Like, oh, I just moved here and we're looking for a different doctor and blah, blah, blah. And then the next time you get, you start running out, it's kind of like, oh, well, that doctor doesn't really understand what I'm going through, so I'm gonna find another doctor. There was certain family members who started noticing weird patterns and erratic behavior, especially in me, and they, started to become concerned and they would say things um, either to me or to my wife. There was times where she probably tried to protect me and then I, I would try to protect her in different ways or whatever, but just justifying it and, and at times lying about it. She started to get sick and she was diagnosed with uh, a bleeding disorder of unknown origin that was called idiopathic thrombocytopedic purpura or ITP. The long and short of it is that the treatments for the ITP, which involved the platelet transfusion along with steroids, 
um, caused another condition called avascular necrosis, or AVN. And avascular necrosis is basically when the death of bone tissue, that's what the necrosis is. And I remember her telling me at, at night, like, I mean, she would often cry herself to sleep and, and oh. share that. It, it felt like a, a car driving back and forth over her legs just again and again and again. That's what she likened it to. And so we spent months um, visiting doctors, frequenting the emergency rooms um, to, to try to get her diagnosed. And by that time, you know, you're kind of in a mixed, in a, in a, in a spiral because I'm becoming more and more heavily addicted to the medications. She's now on pain medications. We're sharing pain medication. I was so far gone that I started altering prescriptions that, that she would get from the emergency room. But after about five weeks, she developed a blood clot um, and that got into her lungs and caused a double pulmonary embolism. And that's ultimately what took her life. Julian was devastated by his wife's premature death. But instead of turning to God for help, he retreated from friends and family and worked harder to hide his addiction. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part. They have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you'd like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they want to do the same for your students' math needs. 
So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. I started to just wallow in self-pity. That's really when I started feeling like, man, I'm this, I'm a victim of my circumstances. I thought the legal system was out to get me because they had always, they had, I started getting trouble with the law from forging prescriptions and doctors started catching on. Um, pharmacies would call the, the hospital to, to say, hey, did you really prescribe this guy this many pills? Or was it just this many? And, and I mean, I would go to the pharmacy and the police would be waiting for me. Um, and kind of interrogate me in the back room of these pharmacies. And, but I, you know, I thought my situation was unique. And that's one of the, the things um, nobody, no, I felt like nobody really understood what I was going through. And so I also, in that sense, didn't necessarily feel like I could talk to anybody except like a secular, I talked to a lot of secular counselors. Like I went to counseling quite a bit. They listened to my one-sided story and, uh, would say things like, you just need to believe in yourself and your energy is limitless and, uh, you know, you could be whatever you want. And they told me to just do what made me happy. So after all, happiness was mine to take. You know, what were my dreams, my passions? What was my heart telling me? If I could just live in the moment and embrace the possibilities, you know, blah, 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 walk my own path, everything will work out. That's the kind of advice I got, you know, be strong in yourself. So I would, I would take on this persona, you know, that, so now I'm creating this new false identity of a strong fighter because I felt like the world was against me and people were falsely accusing me and, and the law, the legal system was out to get me as if they had no reason to be suspicious. They had every reason, but I was like, I really believed I could stop at any time, but I needed these things to get me through the day so that I can help the kids and do the things that I need to do. And it was, it was ridiculous. I felt like I was this strong individual. And I think those, a lot of those medications, they give you that false assurity, yeah. if you will. But I mean, I was, I was delusional and I was foolish. And, and at the heart level, I was just reluctant to surrender to God. I mean, that's what it boiled down to. I was, mm. still, I was still resisting every bit of my circumstances. And yeah, I tell people resistance to God's providence and will for, for their lives, that's not strength, it's stupidity. And I was stupid. Yeah. I had become so desensitized and it was it was horrible. At at this point, would you describe yourself were you angry with God? Were you not you just didn't really care that much about what God had to say? Uh, just deadened? I wasn't deadened to God at all. Um I still felt like I had a very active relationship with him. As a matter of fact, I I was kind of I felt like I had great faith. You know, I'm a single dad, I'm taking care of these four kids. And then, uh, you know, outsiders come along and like, oh, wow, like, how do you do it? And that kind of, I mean, that strokes your ego in a little bit. I started to get heavily into the Word of Faith movement. And I, I started praying for healing. I mean, it would be middle of the night and I would go to the 24 by 7 prayer room and, and would pray and, and have people pray over me. And when you say praying for healing, not praying for healing from addiction to drugs. Oh, no. Because it's something. For my back pain. For your back pain. Yeah, because I didn't have a drug problem, mind you. I would never admit to anybody that I had a drug problem. So there was there was a lot of denial. I mean, I was addicted to every mind-altering substance that you can imagine. It turned into a time where I basically lied and deceived every single person that I knew. I mean, just everything was a lie. Because everything in my life had become a total fabrication. 
you know you're in bondage when someone asks you a simple question and and you can't even answer without exaggerating the truth in some way and you don't even have to yeah but just literally everything was a lie i just i remember i was so anxious in a way like people were on to me and i i i would even like go out of my way to try to do these other things to try to detract the attention off me when i assumed somebody might know something these could be just total strangers on the street but you live just in this constant state of fear which is weird right because you have this strong persona on but then there's this other side where you're like you're afraid to death julian's fear and paranoia of being caught affected everything it had only been a few months since his wife had died but his entire life had spiraled out of control he could no longer keep a job, and soon he wouldn't be able to keep a family either. So I ended up signing the, the four kids up. We had been homeschooling. I signed them up for a local Christian school. And so I took them to buy shoes for the fall. 24 by 7, I'm on something, oftentimes multiple somethings. And I remember driving them to the shoe store in my Hummer H2, which was pretty battered because of all the accidents I've had in it. And I remember driving to the store and I parked there and even one of my rearview mirrors was dangling because of something else I'd run into whenever. I don't even know when all I ran into what. But um, I remember being in that shoe store and I dozed off and the shoe store clerk ended up calling the police thinking I was, she thought I was drunk, I think. Um, and, and you know, and because I was with these little kids. And so when we left, um, the police was in the parking lot and they met us there. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving them all these reasons and excuses and whatnot. And they're just like, uh-huh. <laughs> I remember them doing the line test, you know, stand on one foot. And I'm just like staggering all over the place and telling them, oh, I could never do this even in gym class. So, how, you know, how can you ask me to do this now? And there's a really defining moment there because they, they, they asked me, do you have anyone in close by who could come and get these kids and I did my sister-in-law and her husband lived I mean two two miles away but because of the growing suspicion of that side of the family I didn't want anything to do with them because I didn't want them to know the truth thinking maybe you know they didn't know the full truth and and so I said no there's nobody here thinking they would just turn them over to me and tell me to go home and get some rest or whatever well that didn't happen. They split them, put the boys in one squad car, the girls in the other squad car, and me in the third squad car. That was the kids' first experience with foster care. After being released from jail, Julian was confronted by several family members and friends who tried to intervene. He begrudgingly agreed to attend rehab, but only to appease them. Julian still refused to believe that he was an addict or that he had a drug problem. And because of that, his rehab experience was actually counterproductive. He simply learned more about how addiction worked and about other substances that he could abuse and become cross-addicted to. But after being released from rehab, he still went through the motions of pretending that he was recovered. After I got out of that, that rehab, I stayed, I did stay clean for maybe two months-ish, something like that. But then just gradually got back into the you know, you, you justify yourself again and, and back pain kicks up or whatever. And anything you can handle it if you only do this much. Well, it never stays only this much ever. Yeah. 
And so I became cross-addicted. Um, I started using anything I could get my hands on, whether it was tranquilizers, um, hypnotics, muscle relaxers. Um, I also, at, at that, somewhere around that time, became very heavily addicted to pornography. And then 2011, I mean, just consisted of increased drug and alcohol use. And I mean, it really, 2011, my, my memory is very questionable, to say the least. I had dozens of relationships with, with pharmacies, with doctors. I even had, I mean, I remember I kept like an Excel spreadsheet of when this was due for refill and that was due for refill. When that, when the doctor started to catch on, I would, then I started ordering prescriptions illegally online and I would get them from overseas and from Mexico. And I was just, I was in and out of drug treatment programs. Um, various ones. I was in and out of mental health wards of hospitals and psychiatric hospitals, getting into more and more trouble with the law. And that's when finally, I mean, my kids, the four kiddos were legally removed from my care. I don't, I don't know how much I came to the realization that my whole life had become a lie at that point, but I do remember feeling very ashamed. Hmm. I often liken myself to Job, you know, in my strong persona, um, because Job, you know, lost all of his kids and then, you know, he's, he's down to his wife and all these, these things. And I had lost my wife and then lost all my kids. So I was just like, man, I'm like Job in the flesh. But my hope was in my own abilities to overcome this thing. It wasn't in Jesus. It wasn't in the power of God. It was in me. And my focus was on myself, self-preservation, self-hatred. There was a lot of self-hatred, self destruction and absolutely no self-control yeah and like i said before I, I just i just quenched the work of the holy spirit in my life i was resisting anything good at that point and basically embracing anything evil yeah so it was a time when i was really trying to take my life into my own hands and i lost all hope like i didn't want to live with myself any longer by early 2012 um, I was sitting in a bathtub with a butcher knife at my wrist I can still feel the point of that knife on my arm on my, on my left wrist and you know it was the time where I once again trying to take my life into my own hands but um, God knew and he had an intervention planned just a few months prior I had the name of all my four kids tattooed on my wrists and when I was sitting there, I just, I couldn't slice through them. Like even though I thought the kids would be better off without me, I couldn't slice through it. You know, and then more of the same next couple of months. In early February of 2012, I, I left the state. I had this bright idea that I would drive to my parents' house, who lived like some 800 miles away, to get cleaned up. So at that point, I think I started to recognize something's gotta give, I need to get out of here. Well, about four hours into that trip, I again was, a, <laughs> I was pulled over for driving under the influence. Apparently I was uh, tailgating several semis and they radioed me in. And so I spent a night in jail there. I went through withdrawal. And I was still convinced at that point that, that all my kids would be better off without me. And so I, I made two 
attempts on my life in that jail cell. And I mean, there's absolutely no lasting damage whatsoever. So, you know, God even then um, was with me. And I remember then one or two days later after being in that town, I don't even know how I still was able to drive. And I remember calling my mom to tell her, hey, I'm on my way to see you guys. And she's like, um, she's like, your attorney called me. You have like a warrant out for your arrest and X, Y, Z for not showing up to court dates for the, I think, I don't know, probably for the prescription fraud or something else, who knows. And so she's like, you need to, you need to go back. And so I'm like, okay. I really, really believe it was the power of God intervening at that specific time. Because the way I was going, and I'm, I'm sure if, if I had done it in my own flesh, like I'd been doing everything else, I would have probably kept driving four more hours till I got to the next jail. And for the first time since his addictions began, Julian was finally ready to face the consequences of his actions. He couldn't undo what he had done, but at least he could stop running away. Once I was actually in that county jail, um, that was the first time in many years that I actually felt safe. And mainly because I was, I think I was safe for myself. Hmm. When I first got booked, they, the nurse kind of does an assessment on you. And she asked me, have you been suicidal in the last 24 to 48 hours? And I also believe by God's grace, I, I said, yeah, yeah I'm this, back in this jail. And so she put me in the psychiatric ward. They strip you of all your clothes and they wrap you in what I would liken to like a, one of those U-Haul blankets the moving blankets with a, um, a Velcro. And that's to keep you safe because they don't want you to have anything on you with which you could harm yourself, hang yourself, gag yourself, whatever. So they put me in a, in a padded cell and I remember the, the prison guard asked me, he's like, do you want anything to read? Because you're probably gonna be in here for a while. Sure, give me something. Turns out he was a believer. Mm. So he hands me a Bible and I open it up to the, the book of Job. Just happenstance, right? And I start reading. And, you know, early on, when all these, the Lord allows all these things to happen to, to Job, what is Job's response? The Lord has taken, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, what was Julian's response in that same circumstance? Pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. And I remember you know, Job tore his clothes. And so I kind of picture him halfway or mostly naked or whatever, and he gets down and he throws the ashes on and, 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 and he he's just before the Lord. And so here I am, mostly naked in this blanket of sorts. And I remember the Lord opened my eyes that night. And I mean, just to the, the pride and the arrogance in which I had lived. And I fell down on my knees and I'm like, okay, God, I'm done. Such peace came over me. Like all the, the anxiety and the worry and this and that. I mean, it just, it just like, it went away like that. The withdrawal symptoms dissipated. That's supernatural. And I just started pouring into his word. And one of the side effects of when you've been on sleeping medication for so long, not to mention abusing, 
hypnotic type medications for so long and in such great quantities as, as you have insomnia. And so I was up for days straight. But like there was this peace and I was just pouring through the word. This prison guard worked nights. He, we would sit, like everybody else would be asleep and he and I would sit at the table just pouring into the word. And so I spent two weeks in, in general population in the jail there, and then they moved me. My attorney was able to get me into that therapeutic community program, which is a six-month program. Um, that program had a lot of intense classes. You do everything together. You get up at the same time early in the morning. The whole Everybody in the program goes to eat breakfast together. They come back. You take the classes together. They split you up, and you do group therapy. And, um, you just, you live with these people. Um, and about three months later, that's when I finally came to terms with the fact that I was an alcoholic and an addict. And that was a serious problem. Only three months into the program. Three months into the program. It's just unbelievable to see how God, how his hand is, is just there and he allows things, but it's, it's for a purpose. Yeah. And he allows me and us to do foolish things for a purpose, for a season. One of the counselors actually had a lot of um, religious background, and whether it's Judaism, Catholicism, whatever. And so he knew the Christian faith fairly well, and so that's how he approached me. Hmm. And I remember even sitting in his office one day about just talking about how I can't forgive myself for what I put my kids through. And he looked at me, he goes, well, he goes, aren't you a Christian? Because I wasn't shy about my faith, and right, and so as I did my book work, I would go back to the scriptures and kind of try to cross-reference and all this. And I remember asking, he's like, aren't you a Christian? I'm like, well, yeah. And he goes, isn't that kind of a, a slap in the face to Jesus for you to say you can't forgive yourself after everything that he went through to forgive you of your sins? This is a, an unsaved man saying a this to me. A non-Christian. A non-Christian, and that just hit me and that that was a real a real turning point and i still wrestle with a lot of this stuff right i mean i still feel remorse for what i put the kids through what i put my family through and and all these things but nothing is more evident anymore than than just god's forgiveness in the midst of it all yeah yeah and that it's all about him after battling and losing to every form of addiction for five years julian was finally ready to submit his life to christ a few months later, he was released from jail, a completely changed man. Now, they were still a long road ahead of him, but one that he would not have to travel alone. For starters, he now had Christ in the driver's seat. But also, Julian had a family again. He was eventually reunited with his children and through a series of incredible circumstances, married his second wife, Natalie, who has been a constant encouragement to him even during some of his hardest moments. If you like to stay up to date with current events, then you'll especially appreciate another podcast I enjoy called The World and Everything in It. It's a daily news program, about 30 minutes long, delivered every weekday morning by Christian journalists from around the world. And they aren't just rehashing the current headlines. They're actually doing investigative, boots-on-the-ground journalism while providing biblical cultural analysis. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. 
And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcasts' top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. Recently, my family has been enjoying Redeem TV. They're a Christian streaming service that's ad-free and fee-free with over a quarter million subscribers spread throughout the world. We love their wide selection of movies, documentaries, and children's programming. And their library of edifying titles is always growing and is sure to have something for you. For your next family movie night, I encourage you to visit RedeemTV.com or download one of their apps to your device or smart TV and start streaming goodness wherever you go. And don't forget, they have no fees and no ads. Get started at RedeemTV.com. I mean, really, one of the biggest things that I think keeps me sober and clean is is rigorous honesty and transparency. And I have, you know, a, a few guy friends that I can talk to about these things. But Natalie, too, is my first defense. Like, if I struggle with anything, um, I can go to I go to her and we pray. And and I mean, with the pills, one of my biggest fears has been the kidney stones. And I remember the first time I I've I mean, after you've had so many of them, you kind of know what's coming, right? I had one, and and Natalie and I would just start praying, and because I didn't want to take medicine for it, because it's, it, I mean, it scares me. It's a healthy fear, right? Because I know how easily I could probably get hooked again. And I remember we we prayed, and I'm drinking like tons of water, you know, to try to dislodge this thing, and then and she mixed me this this funky concoction of like apple cider vinegar and lemon juice and honey this is horrid horrid stuff and i'm chugging this and we're praying and then i'm finally i'm like man i gotta i think i need to go in like this is it's too, it's too painful because it puts you in fetal position i mean you can't function mm. properly like you can't even drive man we get to the to the er parking lot and we're still praying the lord's will be done we're like lord we trust you with this and all of a sudden, I mean, the pain, it subsides. And there have been at least two times since then where we would just pray. And I never had to take anything other than maybe like an ibuprofen or something, which for kidney stones is lame. But the Lord, he's really, he's given me strength and he's moved mm. in a way through those circumstances. And I've also had two relatively major surgeries since I've been out of jail and the, I mean, the Lord just, he even sustained me through that to where I didn't have to take anything narcotic. I took an ibuprofen and, and God got me through. And then I did a, had another surgery. I don't remember if it was before or after that one. That was you're, where you're down for a few days and same thing. Wow. So that, you know, the Lord's been really gracious to me with, with respect to those types of medications and just empowering, I guess, me to, to resist them even when they're offered. Last Wednesday, Julian celebrated his ninth anniversary of being free from his addictions to drugs and alcohol. Today, he shares his experiences with other men fighting the same battles that he once did. 
As we wrapped up our conversation, Julian reflected on the undeserved grace that God has shown to him and the lessons that he's learned. I have so far to go, but and even as we Christians, we'll continue to struggle with sin, and we may even fall into grievous sin for a time like I did. But God uses it to correct us. He uses it to, to teach us, to teach us reverence for him. And I have a greater reverence for him than, than I've ever had before in my life. Yeah. And, you know, I can testify personally that his, his discipline, it can be terribly painful. Not only for me. I mean, everything that he allowed me to do in my foolishness, it was painful for everybody around me too. And I pray in his sovereignty that, that he uses it in their lives as well you know, to, to yield fruit of greater conformity to himself. In Hebrews twelve six, there's a promise, and that says, it's whom the Lord loves, he chastens. God allowed addiction in my life to remove many strongholds that I didn't even know were there. And I have a whole new understanding of, of sinfulness and, and our guilty standing before a holy and, and just God that I never, I never had that before. Yeah. And that's also what I, you know, what, what I try to emphasize with, with guys that I meet with that are struggling with addiction. I'm like, it's one thing. Yeah, obviously you want to clean up, but you know what? That's not the end goal. Yeah. The end goal is for you to get to know who God is and to spend eternity with Jesus. That's the end goal, not getting clean. Well, that's a different perspective, but he's, he's reassured me. And what he promises, he, he is able and willing to perform. And he does so exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all that we can think or imagine. You know, he restored my, my children unto me after they were legally removed. He moved in their hearts to, to forgive me for the horror I put them through. Um, he blessed me with Natalie, a new wife who literally is Ephesians 3, 20 and 20. I mean, she is so far above and beyond anything I could have thought or imagined. Um, he provided a new job, you know, to where I can support my family. And, and now he's using my, my mess, if you will, to proclaim his message, his gospel to other people who are struggling with addiction. And that's been, that's been a great blessing. You know, he's renewed my prayer life and he's, he's just more real than he's ever been before. I shouldn't be here. I, at best, I should be dead, and I believe God would have me in his arms, as I do believe I knew him, even though I went very astray. But if not that, I should be in, in prison for life because of what I, what I put those kids through and the, the many times I drove with them under the influence and all these other things. So it's, it's, it's by God, by his grace that I'm alive. It's by his grace that I'm not in jail for life. It's by his grace that I actually have a relationship with my kids and, and with, with most of the extended family. And that, that is all, it's all him. Cause I certainly did everything I could to destroy my life and, and the relationships and everything around me. And he sought in his goodness to, to restore that unto me. Wow. Well, Julie, I'm just really glad and grateful that you've taken your afternoon to share this story with us. I think it's a really powerful testimony and obviously something that has uh, helped many other people's lives as well and continues to help them, I think. That is my prayer. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, brother. A few weeks ago, I shared Julian's story with my friend Donna, and she sent back to me a Bible passage which summarizes Julian's story so well. 
It's an excerpt from Psalm 107, which says, let the redeemed tell their stories. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. And that's my prayer for those listening. May we all give God thanks for the way he worked in Julian's life and for his unfailing love toward all of us. You can learn more about Julian or ask him to speak at your church by visiting his website, identifiedministries.com. Or you can visit compelledpodcast.com and look up our show notes. There we'll include photos of Julian before and after his addictions, one of his songs from his garage band days, and some other fun behind the scenes photos. We'll also be giving away three workbooks and discussion guides that Julian has created to help those recovering from addiction. If you'd like a copy, simply visit compelledpodcast.com this week and enter our drawing. While you're there, please consider joining Compelled as a monthly member for as little as $10 a month. Members get to listen to each episode of Compelled one week early, meaning that you could actually listen to next week's episode right now. But most importantly, you allow us to continue creating these stories about God's work. To learn more, click the button at the top of our website that says, Become a Member. Also, another great way you can support Compelled is by sharing this episode with your friends that you think would enjoy it. We have an easy-to-use tool at our website that makes it really simple to share episodes through email or social media. And to say thanks, we have some fun perks we'd like to send your way, including a sticker, a coffee mug, or even a complete New Testament scripture journal set from Crossway Publishing. Get started by clicking the share button at the top of our website. Again, that's at compelledpodcast.com. This episode was produced by me and my wife, Sarah Hastings. Our editor is Zach Fowler. Our production intern is Ethan Adams. And our music outro is by Ben Jackson and Brian Facchino. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's episode with Doug and Sela Helms, a married couple from Fort Worth, Texas, whose world was turned upside down after a tragic car accident left their 17-year-old son with a traumatic brain injury. Together, they would face the greatest trial of their life, and their faith in the Lord would be tested to the limit. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and we'll be back with another compelling story next Tuesday. The car was so mangled that they couldn't get close to him. The, the car was basically horseshoe-shaped. And the sheriff who showed up at the accident said that he had declared Pete a fatality. One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th. And there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com events. And I hope to see you there.